I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about European defense and the upcoming NATO summit in Vilnius next week, we have with us Max Bergman, who is the director of our Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program and the Stewart Center at CSIS. Max, welcome. This is an exciting time in European defense, and you have a new report out called Transforming European Defense, Focus on Integration. Tell me about the report and how it relates to the upcoming summit. Well, the report basically tries to take a step back and look at European defense and say, what's gone wrong here? I think the basic question is European militaries are in a decrepit state and whether they will be able to right-size the ship. Now, the answer to this that the United States has oftentimes said is the way to fix European defense is for European militaries to just spend more. And I think that's definitely part of the solution. It's critical. European militaries have been under-investing for two decades and they have to spend more. However, one of the things that we've identified in this report is that European militaries have spent more over the last decade, yet European defense cooperation, so European militaries working together and how they spend their money, has actually declined. And so when you have a lot of European countries, so more than 25 European countries in NATO, 27 EU members, all spending more, but spending separately, you're not going to get your sort of bang for the euro. So what our report really tries to identify is that the critical need here is that the United States should really start emphasizing European defense cooperation as much as it does European defense spending. Because it's if you're going to spend more, but spend it on your own parochial national need, but it doesn't really advance European defense interests, then that's not going to lead to getting much bang for the euro or what Europeans are spending. All right. So this might be a silly question, but why spend so much more and then not spend money to cooperate and integrate? Well, this this gets to sort of the heart of the matter or the truth of the matter is that NATO has worked, right? NATO has succeeded in really making defense a peripheral concern for most European countries. So if you're in Spain or you're in Belgium, what is the threat to your nation? The answer is There isn't really one. And so if you're just going to operate on pure national interests, you're not going to spend a lot more on defense because why would you spend more on defense when really there isn't a threat there? And this is the fundamental problem that NATO has been having is that the national interests of many of its member countries mean that it doesn't need to spend more. However, what we're seeing is that Europe is acting more as Europe, that the European Union has survived a decade of crises. Europe just released an economic security strategy for the first time. It's starting to take China more seriously. It's operating more as Europe, as the EU in international affairs, yet it's not doing so in defense. Now, there's sort of this debate that has emerged. Really, if you look at the pages of foreign affairs, it's a great back and forth between those sort of defending the kind of traditional NATO focus and saying that NATO as is, really serves American interests. And then others that are really frustrated with the current state of European defense and saying, no, this isn't a good bargain for the United States. We're spending so much. We're doing so much for European security. And look, Europe's rich. And the only way to get Europeans to do more is really to pull back. What this report tries to do is outline kind of a middle path here that we can't just pull back from Europe because European security is critical for us and European militaries aren't up to it. 
On the other hand, staying the course with NATO and the U.S. basically playing the role as quarterback on every topic of European defense also doesn't serve our interests. So what our report does is actually start with a question of what does America actually want from Europe? Do we want to be indispensable to European security, which is actually what most of U.S. policy is about? Or do we want Europe to act more as Europe, to be stronger and more, frankly, autonomous and be able to do things without the United States sort of fundamentally engaged? And if it's the latter, which I think rhetorically oftentimes you hear that from American presidents, then we need to start emphasizing the Europeans develop some of the basic capabilities like enabling capabilities, air transport, air tankers, things like that, that frankly are beyond the capacity of individual European member states buying, that they'll need to join together, work together to procure these systems. And that's happening, but maybe not at the level that we should want. And we need to really start pushing the Europeans to do more together. Well, so the focus of this NATO summit, of course, is going to be Ukraine. And Ukraine is the central reason, if there ever was one, for the European countries and NATO to really bond together and cooperate and do more. So what do you expect out of the summit? So I expect out of the summit, there'll be a lot of good rhetoric about Ukraine and how Ukraine's future is potentially being part of NATO. But I think Ukraine, unfortunately, is not going to become a member anytime soon, as long as the war is going on. And frankly, this is why it was always sort of a lie that the Russians pushed that invading Ukraine was about NATO expansion. Russians already had a de facto veto on Ukrainian membership post-2014 when they seized Ukrainian territory and were at war with Ukraine. And that remains. And so it's going to be very hard for Ukraine to actually become a full-fledged member of the NATO alliance as long as it's at war with Russia. And this is the fundamental dilemma that it's in. However, what I hope to see are strong financial commitments on the part of the U.S. and other NATO countries to support Ukrainian security, not just for the upcoming counteroffensive, but indefinitely, really. When we think of the U.S. commitment to Israel security, for instance, we commit to provide more than $3 billion every year. And that's something that I think we should be doing for Ukraine. It also begs the question, though, when we talk about European militaries, that European militaries are arguably weaker now than they were before the invasion. Why? because they've been giving equipment to Ukraine. Now, that is totally the right thing to do. However, that has exacerbated many of the readiness shortfalls that plague European militaries. And one of my concerns here is that NATO has put out really high targets, wanting to have hundreds of thousands of European forces ready to go to defend every inch of NATO territory. That's exactly the right goal. However, European readiness has declined because of the equipment shortfalls. When a country like Denmark gives all its Caesar artillery, high-end artillery, to Ukraine, that's fantastic. But it's going to take a while for European militaries to really recapitalize. And this is why the working together to recapitalize is so critical, because if the only way for them to really do this in a cost-effective manner is to do it together. And this is one other plug in the report, is we really highlight the role of the EU here, is that the EU does integration. It gets countries to work together. And this is where the EU can facilitate integration amongst NATO member states in a way that's totally complementary to NATO and really advances the goals that NATO is outlining in the summit. Fortunately, I don't think we're going to hear a lot about that cooperation, but I think we're going to hear a lot about commitments to Ukraine, hopefully. Let's go back to the Israel example. The United States is committed to Israel's security at a level of $3 billion a year. When we're talking about Ukraine, though, the scale is much, much higher. What about that? I mean, is there a commitment in perpetuity to Ukraine? 
Well, so, you know, I've dealt with when I was in government, the Israel security assistance portfolio quite a bit. And one of the benefits of it for the Israelis is that they know it's going to be there. So when you sign a 10-year memorandum of understanding, the Israelis, for instance, know they're going to get roughly $35 billion over 10 years. So what do they do with that money? Well, they don't just wait every year. They can go to companies and say, okay, we're going to Lockheed Martin, we're going to buy the F-35, we're going to buy this number, we're going to buy these number of tanks. They can really make effective long-term defense planning. One of the problems right now for Ukraine is we're providing $3 billion to Ukraine you know, every month uh, at sure. the very least, even, if not more, in just security support. But that money is getting used to fight the war right now, every month. What Ukraine has not been able to do is make sort of long-term planning about what vehicles does it want to replace the tanks that it's getting from the West that it's about to lose in battle? What are the long-term purchases that it's going to make? And this is, I think, also sends a critical signal to Vladimir Putin because his hope has been to sort of outweigh the West, that Western support will go down and then Russia will be able to win a long war. But if you're making long-term security commitments, Putin knows that the Ukrainian military that he's going to face in 2025 or 2026 is actually going to be more advanced, more sophisticated than the one he's facing today because suddenly they know the Ukrainians will have this pot of money and start making long-term acquisitions of high-end Western equipment. So is it on the table at this NATO summit to come up with some kind of statement that the United States and NATO will have a long-term commitment to Ukraine? Well, I think it will be part of the NATO summit, but probably maybe not under a NATO umbrella, that the United States has been very careful at separating its support for Ukraine and also European support for Ukraine from NATO, doesn't want it to be seen as a NATO-Russia conflict. That's why we have the Ukraine contact group that brings countries together to support Ukraine and wanting to sort of separate that from NATO. So I think any security financial guarantees will happen technically outside of NATO. But what we'll see is some, I think, commitments by NATO to provide some more technical funding and also to provide potential a streamlined pathway to Ukrainian membership once the time is right. What's key here is the pressure for Ukrainian membership helps create pressure in capitals, both in Washington, in London, in Paris, in Brussels, in Berlin, for larger financial support to Ukraine. So even if Ukraine doesn't get full membership, which I don't think is in the cards, hopefully that can bear some tangible benefits for Ukraine and how it fights this war. Okay. So meanwhile, there has been some progress since last year's summit. Can you talk about that? Yeah, there's been, I think, real progress that NATO is moving forward in really changing how it operates, right? NATO has been focused on out-of-area operations. Think about Afghanistan, think about training missions in Iraq for much of the last two decades. But now NATO is back to its core task, which is deterring Russia. And NATO is moving to implementing regional plans, which I think is an important new development where NATO countries will effectively have tasks to say, well, your task is to provide forces to defend the Baltic states, or your task is to defend or provide security to the southern flank. And this is going to be, I think, incredibly important. What NATO hopes is that this provides real clarity to European countries about what capabilities they need to invest in so that as they're rebuilding their forces, they will rebuild it in ways that will benefit NATO as a whole. I think that's important. I hope that works. 
I also think that what NATO needs to also realize here is that Europeans are going to begin to have security interests that are beyond NATO. And when you think about the EU, the EU will have security interests that may not directly align with NATO or the United States. U.S. has pivoted away from the Middle East. Uh, we're not that focused on it, but that's Europe's periphery. That's Europe has real security interests in North Africa, in the Middle East, and may decide, maybe not the next year or so, but down the line that developing military capabilities to do out of area operations is in EU interest. And that may not be in NATO interest. That may not be what NATO wants to do or what the United States wants to do. So the Europeans are going to have to develop military capabilities, not just for these regional plans, but enable Europe to act, frankly, as a global power around the world. Because when you look at the EU's economy with 450 million people, an economy the equivalent the size of China and the United States, it has the interests of a global power and it can't always rely on the United States to be protecting those interests abroad. So what do you think the prospects are for Europe actually acting like that? So I think when we project out, when we think Europe 2030, Europe 2035, I think what we're definitely going to see is increased spending. So we're going to see countries spending more. However, how much more is a big question. There's actually a big debate happening at the EU, completely divorced from what's happening at NATO, on the future of what the EU calls the Stability and Growth Pact. This is basically sets the budgets for EU member countries. And there's pressure from Germany to make that all about a deficit reduction. And if that's the case, then there's just no chance that a country like Spain, which has a high deficit, to spend more on defense. So there's these parallel conversations happening, which I think are really important. I think no matter what, though, when we take a step back, European military are going to get stronger. The question is, are European militaries going to get stronger in such a way that enables Europe to act more on its own, both in support of NATO and in support of European interests abroad? I think this is in the interest of the United States. There's many that fear that if Europe gets stronger, more autonomous, to use the French term, that Europe will decouple from the United States. I think the war in Ukraine has shown that Europe and the United States fundamentally are aligned. And we're democracies that believe in the rule of law, believe in the current international order. And so I'm not worried about that. And so I think what we'll continue to see is the EU becoming a stronger actor in international affairs and European militaries hopefully gradually working more together. And that will mean, I think, by 2030, 2035, that not just NATO, but the EU itself will be much stronger. The question is how much stronger? What role does the United States play in these discussions? Because we're a critical actor. We have more influence in Europe than any other region in the world. And oftentimes we've used that to prevent European countries from working together. And it's, I think, really important that we encourage them to cooperate more. So... England and France, of course, have always had traditionally strong militaries. Now Ukraine has a very strong military. But we're also looking at Finland about to join NATO and strong military. And Sweden, on the cusp of joining NATO, also a capable military. Are those the real areas of growth that you see, plus throw in Germany? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? The UK, France are strong militaries that have forces that are ready to roll. And in fact, they are making now increased investments. You also see that with Germany finally making a big decision to invest. So if the Germans can turn their military around, which is in a totally dire state, and they have a great new minister of defense that is really pushing a lot of reforms. But then when you talk about Finland joining, right, it's Finland, Sweden, the other Nordic countries are beginning to work more together. One problem with having an alliance of 31 and hopefully 32 countries with Sweden potentially joining, although Turkey is still holding it up, 
is that you will need to have more regional sub-European cooperation. So the Nordic countries are now working together to coordinate their air forces. And together, they have more than 200 fourth and fifth generation fighter jets. That's real combat capability that can really deter Russia, provide real security in the high north and in the Baltic and come to the protection of Baltic countries. And that sort of cooperation and collaboration is going to be really critical. And so that's the sort of thing that I think we're going to start hopefully seeing more of. Regional groupings, the UK is pushing the Joint Expeditionary Force, which involves the UK and other Nordic members as well, to provide support to Baltic states. So these sorts of small groups, I think, could be really powerful for Europe and NATO going forward. So clearly Poland needs to be mentioned in this equation too. They've been absolutely heroic for Ukraine, for the United States, for all of Europe. How does Poland figure into this equation going forward? So I think Poland is going to be one of the most powerful land armies in Europe that is going to have its core focus be on deterring the Russian army. And we're seeing Poland invest significantly in its ground forces, buying new tanks in particular and buying them, interestingly, from Korea, which then I think really helps strengthen. You know, here are two American allies that now in Asia and in Europe working closely together. Poland will, I think, set the bar for other NATO countries, and they're trying to reach 4% of defense spending. And that's fantastic, and that will really strengthen the alliance and help deter Russia. But it's also going to be incumbent on other countries, not just Poland, to carry some of this weight. And I think that's where the danger sets in, with defense being a national prerogative amongst European countries. You have countries like Poland, Baltic states, that are going to spend a lot, because the threat is there. The question is, when you get further away from Russia, does the kind of threat perception decline? And frankly, I think it definitely does. However, in some ways, it's a testament to NATO at how much countries actually spend despite not having a clear threat to their nation because of the sense of national solidarity. But so Poland will be a marker for other European countries to hopefully reach. Max, finally, when we think about this, China, of course, is watching all of this, and they're going to be paying a lot of attention to NATO and the summit next week. Where does China fall into this? So I think China has become a major part of the conversations at NATO. There has been talk of NATO opening a liaison office in Tokyo. This is currently opposed not just by the French, but apparently by the UK as well, according to some of the comments from Ben Wallace recently. And I think part of the question is, what is NATO's role in the Indo-Pacific? Do European countries want NATO? Does the United States want NATO, a military alliance, to really be ever present in the Indo-Pacific? Or do we prefer the EU, which comes with European militaries as well, but doesn't have that military alliance mantra on it? And I think this is going to be an open question. I don't think the United States has really decided a strategy for what we actually want from our European partners in the Indo-Pacific. We've said we want them to focus on China more, focus on the threat more. And I think they're doing that. And I think now the next step is to really start to figure out, well, what capabilities and assets do European countries have that could play a real role? You know, as much as we sort of deride European militaries, the fact is they have aircraft carriers, they have submarines, they have advanced fighter jets, they have a lot of assets and capabilities that would be really critical in the Indo-Pacific. They also have an industrial base that may be weaker than it should be, but can provide precision guided munitions, things that we may run short of in a conflict. And, you know, in every war that we have fought, our European partners have been there, maybe not as NATO, but individually. And so I think there's a conversation to be had about what do we actually want from our European partners? And also, if there was going to be a conflict over Taiwan, for instance, what would that mean for European security? What assets would the United States pull from Europe? 
And do the Europeans right now have the means to backfill those U.S. assets that may have to go in a hurry to the Indo-Pacific? So I think there's a, now a conversation of viewing this as sort of, you know, Europe and Asia as sort of one theater, because in many ways, that's what it is. But this is an evolving conversation. I think listeners should pay attention to CSIS, because I think we'll hopefully be coming out with some new research and important reports on this very topic, because I think this is going to be the topic that really the alliance, while it's going to be focused on Russia, is also going to have to really start to figure out what its role is with China and the Indo-Pacific. Max, I can't wait to have you back to talk about that and more. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 